So how about that thing called marriage, huh? Is it great? And it's hard, and it's confusing, and it's wonderful. It's all of those things. I think of that one line from that well-known movie years ago that just always stays with me, Mowage, and I'm sure many of you remember that as well. Marriage is this incredibly mysterious thing. And today we come to passage in the Bible that has a lot to say to us about marriage. We're only going to have time to really take a glimpse at it, but I hope that it'll whet your appetite and give you a desire to, uh, to dig deeper on your own time and see what uh, great things are, are waiting there for you. I think it would be fair to say that everyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of how they were raised, regardless of their status in life, whether they're saved or lost, I think it would be safe to say that everyone wants to be loved. Now, I've met some tough people over the years who would never admit that. They say they're fine, they're, uh, they don't care, they don't need anybody to help them through life. And I'm not talking about marriage, I'm just talking about being loved by someone. And here's the thing that you'll figure out the longer you walk with Christ, if you haven't figured this out already... You and I are totally incapable of loving other people with God's love. We can't do it on our own. We cannot love people with the kind of pure love that God has for us. We struggle with it. We think we might be loving someone else or we might be loving our spouse in the best way possible. But, you know, as the years go by and you look back on it, you you realize you've racked up a pretty good ledger of mess-ups and misses. And so it's fair to say that we need help in this area of understanding what love is and learning how to actually live it out. Well, in our Through the Bible study, we came to the place a couple of weeks ago in 1 Kings 11 where we paused there and then we we had just finished studying the life of David and Solomon and we taken a few weeks to look at the writings of David and Solomon. So two weeks ago, we did an overview of Psalms which was mostly written by David. Last week, we looked at Proverbs, which was mostly written by Solomon. Today, we're doing a brief overview of another one of Solomon's writings called the Song of Solomon. So you can go ahead and turn there. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. Next week, we'll look at Solomon's final book called Ecclesiastes. And I would encourage you uh, not to miss that if it's at all possible. It's one of the, I think it's one of the maybe most unread books in the Bible because it just seems so odd. It seems like such a gloomy book, but it's one of my favorites. It it ministers to us in everyday life in such powerful ways, and um, I'm already excited about next Sunday. Well, verse 1 of the Song of Solomon kind of explains to us and, and answers to us why this book is either called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, and both names are correct. It's It's kind of taken on both titles after the years, because you see there in Song of Solomon 1 verse 1, it says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And so both titles are are perfectly correct. We saw recently that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs, in addition to 3,000 proverbs. 1,005 songs. But out of all the songs that Solomon wrote, this is the greatest of them all. That's what it's saying. When it says the Song of Songs, 
It's saying, out of all the songs, this right here is the top of the charts. There's no song better. Now, if you've read this book, you might want to disagree. It's just uh, tough reading sometimes. The Jews hold this book, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, they hold this book very near and dear to their heart. They always have. The Old Testament refers to God's relationship with his people like the relationship between a husband and wife. The prophets often spoke in those terms. They would picture God as, uh, as the groom, and they would picture his people as the bride. The prophets would often chastise the people for turning away from God, for leaving him, for like a lover abandoning their spouse. And God grieved very deeply over that. The Jews see this book as sort of a spiritual allegory of God's relationship with his people. In fact, uh, some of the old writings about this book are interesting. Around about the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish rabbi named Rabbi Akiva, and he wrote this about the Song of Solomon. He said, the entire history of the world from the beginning to this very day, does not outshine that day on which this book was given to Israel. All the scriptures indeed are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. That's a really interesting statement. Again, if you've read this book, cogs might be really grinding in your head to understand why they saw it this way. So uh, the, the Jews still hold a very special place in their heart for this book. And then you come to the New Testament. And the New Testament often refers to the church as the bride of Christ. And so this book became a picture to the church of their relationship to Christ as his bride and Christ as their bridegroom. And so the Song of Solomon is seen, again, as a, as a spiritual allegory of Christ and his love for the church and the church's response to Christ's love. In fact, this, this little book holds so much meaning and application that Charles Spurgeon preached 59 sermons on the Song of Solomon. John Gill, a well-known Puritan preacher, he's the one who preached 122 sermons from the Song of Solomon, eight little chapters. And a preacher from the Middle Ages, Bernard of Clairvaux preached 89 sermons just from chapters 1 and 2. And you think I'm taking a long time to teach through the Bible. It's amazing. How could anyone draw that much material and truth and application out of a little book like this, tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament? Well, once you begin to see what this book is really saying, you'll realize that it's filled with important, relevant, spiritual application, and I just want to do a broad overview of it today. So it's important, I think, to begin at the beginning. There, there are three main characters in this book that we see all throughout uh, all eight chapters. There's the young maiden who's called the Shulamite woman. There's the young man who's referred to throughout the book as the beloved. That's Sandy's nickname for me. On some days. Kevin, you got to back me up on this stuff, man. <laughs> a lot of love in this room today. So there's the young maiden, the Shulamite woman. There's the young man, the beloved. And then there's the chorus called the Daughters of Jerusalem. 
So those are the three main characters in this book. And, and what we see in this book, just to give the overview, is that this young man has fallen madly in love with the Shulamite girl. And she is madly in love with him. And throughout this book, over and over again, he declares his love for her, and she declares his love for him. It almost gets to the point where the kids are going, oh, please, you know, mom and dad, stop, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just, it never ends through this whole book. It's just this pouring out of love from one to the other. But in order to understand this book, and I think here's where, here's where most people uh, are not able to connect with this strange little book. It's vital for us to understand that the the book of the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is not a narrative. It's not describing a normal, everyday conversation that people have with each other. The book of Song of Solomon is a song. To be more specific, it's a play, if we want to put it in our terms. It's a play. Uh, We would call it today uh, a musical or an opera. And it's vitally important that we understand this. On one side of the stage, you have this young man singing out in this beautiful baritone voice, I would imagine, to the lovely young woman. On the other side of the stage is the young Shulamite girl, and she sings back in soprano voice her love for the young man. And then you have somewhere else on the stage this chorus of women the daughters of Jerusalem, who from time to time during this play will have a part, and they'll step up, and they'll interject, and they'll ask questions about what these two are are doing. And so the play begins by giving us the title, chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And then the curtain goes up, and it begins with the Shulamite girl in verse 2. And it doesn't waste any time. It says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Boys and girls, you can be dismissed if you want and go play outside. I mean, it's just like, wow, we're going right there, huh? Okay. Yes, we are. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is like perfume poured out. Therefore, the virgins or the, the young maidens love you. In other words, she's saying to him, hey, just the mention of your name brings joy to people. Just the mention of your name, just the sight of you is pleasant to everyone because everyone respects you. Everyone loves you. I mean, folks, we could spend an hour here, could we not? Is this not what we want of our life? Rather than people saying, oh, Phil Pike, he's coming? I'm ducking down the back hallway. That guy ripped me off in a deal. No, we need to have a beautiful name in front of people. They need to be able to see Christ in our life. When people hear our name, it should bring joy. It should bring joy, and that's what she's saying to him. Boy, just the mention of your name is pleasant. She says in verse 5, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Don't have time to get into all that, but a really interesting study is the tents of Kedar. You got some time on your hands. So they would use goat skins, black goat skins for their tents. And that's what this is referring to. Verse 6, she says, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me or the sun has tanned me. 
My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, this is kind of cute. She's embarrassed because her family has forced her to go and take a job that a man should have, tough labor outdoors in that Middle Eastern heat all day. And she's worked out in this sun day after day after day, and it has tanned her skin dark. Now, for us today, you're like, that's great, got a nice tan. But we think of that, we sort of equate that with someone who's healthy, who's an outdoorsy kind of person, uh, as opposed to me who's you know, almost see-through. But in those days, listen, having a tan was not a desirable thing because what it meant to others was that you were a lowly worker, someone who was forced to work outside and do menial labor. And so she's coming to her love now and she's, she's embarrassed She's saying, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, my, my skin is all tan dark, and here's why, and, you know, he probably, probably won't love me for this. And it's just almost the, the cutest little moment with her. And then in addition to that, she's, she's also embarrassed that she's been working so much that she hasn't had time, in her words, to, to tend to her own vineyard or to keep up her, her own appearance the way she would like to. You know, we all have areas in our life where we look down on ourselves, don't we? We think very poorly of ourselves. Things about us that we're embarrassed for others to see or to know. We all do. And so one of the beautiful things of love, of true love, of trust in love, is being willing to be vulnerable, to share those things with that other trusted person and know that they will still love you. It's a remarkable thing. Verse 8, the young man replies to her, and he says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, or fairest among women. He's, he's saying, listen, you may not think much of yourself, but let me tell you, girl, you're fine. You are the finest girl in town. And so he begins building her up. He begins praising her and, and covering over her flaws. See, that's what love does. The Bible says love covers over a multitude of sins. I'm so thankful for 32 years to have had a wife whose love covers over my stupidity over and over again. It's a wonderful thing. Are we doing that for others? Then he goes on, giving her all these compliments. He's reassuring her how beautiful she is, how how much he loves her. And in chapter 2, verse 1, It says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Verse 3, she responds. She says, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the young men. I sat down in his shade with great delight. Wow, what a statement. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. See, she's, she's been out in the sun, in the heat, day after day after day. And this is a remarkable statement. I sat down in his shade. Like, he's, he's brought me to a new place. I found rest in him. It's beautiful. Verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. I wish I had time to dive into that one statement. Another beautiful phrase. His banner over me is love. What's a banner? Well, it can be illustrated in so many ways, but think about when a, when a country goes to war 
In the olden days, you would see them riding up on their horses, and they would always, someone would always be carrying their flag. And it would be their symbol. People would recognize them by their banner. And they were saying, everyone under this banner is on our side. They belong to us. We'll fight for them. We'll defend them. We'll protect them. And she's saying, I've been brought under a new banner. He's put his banner over me. He's claimed me as his own. I'm not an outsider. I'm his. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. And then when you take that and you apply that to Christ and what he's done for us, I need to move on because I'm about to preach a second sermon right there. So beautiful that he's brought us under his banner. We're no longer known by the name that we used to be known by. We've been brought into his army, his family. His banner now defines us. Well, these two just go on and on with all this smoochy, mushy love stuff and and singing about their love for each other. And in chapter 3, the woman has a dream. Chapter 3, verse 1. She said, on my bed at night, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me, and I said, Have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him, and I would not let him go. This is such a beautiful picture of true love, that when one is separated from the other, there's this deep sense of loss and longing to be reunited. The same should be true in our relationship with the Lord. Whenever any separation comes between us, do we even notice? Do weeks go by sometimes and we realize, oh yeah, I haven't even talked to God in a while. When a separation comes between us and the Lord, which, by the way, is always our fault, he said he will never leave us or forsake us. When that happens, it ought to fill us with sadness. It ought to fill us with an urgent desire to run after him. Any believer who doesn't ache to be reunited with the Lord when they've separated themselves from him is a person who's never truly come to understand the value and importance of Christ's nearness, his presence. Well, then the young man sings to her, chapter 4, verse 7, with this beautiful statement. He says, you are altogether lovely. You're altogether beautiful, my love. There's no spot in you or no flaw or no blemish. This is the bridegroom speaking of his bride. And when we consider the spiritual analogy of Christ and the church, Christ's view of the church is that you are altogether beautiful. There's no spot in you. The Bible speaks of the church as being without spot or blemish. And that's true of all those who are in Christ, who've been washed clean by his blood. What an amazing thing it is to think that the Lord views me that way. You know, a lot of people are never taught this. They attend a church their whole life, and the the pastor has never once told them the truth about how God sees them if they are in Christ. 
He keeps pounding on them and pounding on them and telling them what rotten sinners they are and how they need to get their act together. It's an amazing thing to think that the Lord views me that way. God sees us not in our sinful state, but in that completed state of righteousness that is ours only in Christ. So comforting to know that that God sees no fault, no blemish, no spot when he looks at me. I got to tell you, I've known this for decades and I still can't quite take it in. I just can't compute it. You know why? Because every time I look in the mirror, not only do I see a ruggedly handsome man, but I see, I got to try to slip those in once in a while. You never know. You know, you know, you know what I see? I see, I see a guy with flaws and failures and shortcomings and mess ups. That's what I see when I look in the mirror. Can't break out of this body down here. God looks at me if I'm in Christ and he sees no spot, no blemish. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and I stand before God without fault because of Christ. And because of that, God will never condemn me for my sin. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh. Now, all throughout this story, the, the bride and groom continue to sing their love for for each other. And they use these word pictures, these phrases that you and I would never think of using today. Here's here's a quick example. Chapter 4, verse 11. Your lips drip nectar. It was just like a week ago that I said that to Sandy. Your lips drip, I can barely say it. Your, Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He he says, your love is like a garden, a spring, a fountain. It's like an orchard of pomegranates. Hey, ladies, an orchard of pomegranates. It's like cinnamon and frankincense and myrrh and aloe. And you're like, all right, we get it. But it's just this nonstop fountain flowing out. He can't help himself and she can't either. Verse 15 You're like a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. And then she she replies, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And what we learn here is that a garden kept to itself serves no purpose. It has no value. It benefits no one. You could plant the most beautiful tomato patch or whatever and let them grow and you never pick them and they stay on the vine and they rot and they die and they're of no use to anyone. Same is true in our life. It's true not only in our marriage relationship, but also when it comes to the work of God in our lives. Listen, the real purposes of God are not, how would you say it? They're not fully accomplished in us until there is a flowing out of his love through us. It's not meant to be kept to ourselves. Verse 16, where she said, blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. In the, in the Bible, spirit and wind are the same word in the Greek. Spirit and breath are the same word in the Hebrew. So it's always this picture of 
this wind moving the spirit. And that's what she's saying, blow upon my garden so that its spices may flow out. And as this bride and groom each want their love to flow out to each other, we should want the same thing in our spiritual lives. That through the spirit, there might be an outflow of the beauty of the work of Christ in our lives so that it might touch the lives of others, that they might benefit from the work God has done in us. A person can get a head full of religion, but if Christ is not blowing through their life so that others can be touched and blessed and strengthened by the beautiful fragrance of that, then it's of no value. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2, we are the aroma of Christ or the sweet fragrance, the, um, I forget what the other word is for that. He says it's a fragrance that brings life. We are the aroma of Christ. What a beautiful thought that God could bear fruit through our lives, bringing those who need it the life that they need. Well, while these two lovers have been proclaiming their love for each other, the daughters of Jerusalem, this chorus now steps into the play. They've been watching, they've been listening to all of this. And in chapter 5, verse 8, the bride says to them, now she's become, she's uh, lost her groom again in the busyness of things. They've become separated. And she says to these women, if you see my love, tell him that I am lovesick over him. And in verse 9, the women say, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? In other words, they're saying, why is he more special than any other man that you would send us on this errand to go and find him and tell him that you're lovesick over him? What makes him so special? And starting in verse 10, the bride goes on and on describing her husband's qualities to show just how wonderful he really is. And in verse 16, she sums it up by saying these words, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. Wow, he's altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. And I think the lesson for us should be clear. As Christ has come to us and made us his bride, and we see the goodness and the beauty in him, we should long to say of him what this bride said of her groom, he is altogether lovely. He's altogether lovely. Out of all the figures of history, out of all the people who've lived and died, he is the fairest among 10,000. He is altogether lovely. And as this play goes on to the end, the, the groom continues proclaiming his love for his bride, and she continues doing the same for him. It's a, it's a continuous outpouring of love for each other. And as we wind this down, I, I just wonder, I wonder as I, as I look at this, the progression through this song, this play, and I see this passionate love that these two people have for each other, I, I have to pause and I have to ask myself, do I have that kind of love for Christ? As we think about, as we reflect upon the depth of his love for us, that he loved us when we were absolutely unlovely, that he pledged himself to us for all time, 
that he gave his life for us. Does that still move us five years, 10 years, 20 years after we were saved? Are we still moved by the thought of that? Does the thought of that, the reality of that still grip us? Does it stir us? Does it ever overwhelm us? Ever? Do you ever read in the Bible what Christ did for us, the suffering that he endured gladly for you? Do you ever have to wipe tears away? Folks, we should be moved by this. And I know they say, um, what is it? Familiarity breeds contempt. You know, I kind of disagree with that. I think familiarity breeds complacency. That's what I think. That's where I think the real danger lies. Oh, I've been saved 20 years. I've been saved 30 years. I've been saved 180 years. Yeah, I'm just kind of coasting now. You know what ought to happen in our relationships with our spouse, in our relationships with our Lord? Every year that goes by, we should love more and more and more. We should be more amazed this year than we were last year that Christ actually loves us and gave his life for us. That should never grow cold. It should never grow stale with us. Are we still amazed that the only reason we love is because he first loved us? 1 John 4, 19. He made the first move. He came to love us long before we loved him. This is reflected beautifully in chapter 7, verse 10 of this book. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Wow. This young bride felt secure in her love because she knew that he desired her. I think about that in terms of the church and Christ's love for us as his bride, and it becomes so beautiful. He loves me. Christ loves me. I am his, and his desire is for me. It's too much to compute, but it's true. Christ is the one who is pictured in the Bible as the good shepherd who goes out into the stormy night across the jagged mountains and through the dangerous waters to seek and to save that one lost sheep. And folks, that's you. And that's me. He seeks us. He desires us. We were lost and separated from him because of our sin. But God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to pay for our sins by dying on the cross in our place. What kind of love is this? We don't know this kind of love. We just have to try our best to receive it. Forget about understanding it. Receive it. And it's not a love that will ever fade. I left this till now. Back in chapter 6, verse 3, the bride says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's a declaration of certainty. That's a declaration of belonging. It's sad to see the number of people who go through life every day with this lingering fear that their spouse is going to leave them. And some of you have suffered that pain of being abandoned by a spouse, and it's brutal. 
But folks, listen, we have the absolute assurance that he will never leave us. We can rejoice in and rest in knowing that he loves us with an everlasting love and that our relationship with him is forever secure. I am my beloved's and he is mine. Well, this little book, Song of Solomon, speaks beautifully of the ideal love between a husband and a wife. We'll never achieve this every moment of every day, but isn't it better to have something to strive for, to desire to attain rather than just kind of drifting through? But this book is also a picture of Christ's love for us and how we should love him in return. And so we've provided um, a chance for you this morning to reflect on that love as we pause in just a moment and share communion together. Communion is a time to stop and to remember the death of Christ when the greatest love that has ever been shown was shown to us. Do you know that love today? Have you ever received that love? Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see